Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm talking to the distinguished military historian Anthony Beaver about his new book, Arnhem, The Battle for the Bridges, 1944, which asks why Market Garden went so catastrophically wrong. This was recorded at a live event, so the audio may be slightly different than you're used to. I'll start with a very obvious question, if I may. I mean, it's sometimes joked that in literary history, the shortest book you could possibly write would be entitled Bloomsbury, The Untold Story. Um, I wonder whether in military history, Market Garden, The Untold Story, you know, what have you been able to, how have you been able to find new material in this very, very well-told tale? It, it so much depends on where you look and where you go. And in this particular case... I was incredibly lucky with advice from friends, and usually it's, it's, it, well, people make a joke, you know, that the, the collective name for historians is a mischief of historians or whatever, the collective noun. Um, but that's not true, because I find that, um, you know, all the other historians I know have all been incredibly helpful in terms of advice, and, you know, vice versa, one helps them. And one does need it when it comes to archives, well, particularly actually it was the Soviet Union. I mean, all of the Russian historians were helping each other on, in advice on where, where stuff was, because quite often they were being moved around between different archives in, in, in Russia. But in this particular case, actually, it was mainly Rick Atkinson, who is an old friend and uh, is a wonderful uh, American historian. Funny enough, his books have never really sort of taken off here. He's been a huge, you know, three times winner of Pulitzer Prize and all the rest of it. But it was Rick who said, Anthony, you're not listening to me. You have got to go to Athens. Ohio. And I thought, well, Athens, Ohio, you know, this was actually the Cornelius Ryan uh, collection of paper, of uh, paper, his papers. And uh, one of the great uh, bonuses there was that um, Ryan, when he was researching A Bridge Too Far, was actually had a superb team of researchers. They'd been helped him on the, his Berlin book and also on his D-Day Normandy book. And they were, as I say, quite outstanding because, because of Reader's Digest, he had them in all the countries. And so they interviewed everybody, whether they were Polish, whether they were Dutch, whether they were German, uh, British, Canadian, American, and so forth. And he never used most of the material. He was dying of cancer at the time when he wrote the book. And he never used most of the material. And all of it was sitting there. And basically, nobody has actually used it, except for one American historian who just did the American side of uh, Market Garden and nothing else. And, I mean, I couldn't believe my luck. I was working, in fact, there's another huge amount of material also in the uh, American archives, the U.S. Army archives at uh, Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and really good stuff there. And also National Archives in Washington. And to begin with, I hadn't, still hadn't really taken Rick seriously. And it was only when I had looked online at the catalogue that they had, and I suddenly realised that this was uh, important. And I went up there with a tripod and my digital camera, and I took 8,000 photographs in the course of um, less than a week. Fortunately, Doug McCabe, who was the archivist, was a huge help. He allowed me to come in at 7 in the morning and work until 7 in the evening, but I gave him a damn good dinner afterwards. Um, and it was, my God, it was worth it, actually, because you can imagine, in, in, um, in Athens, Ohio, the choice of restaurants was not fantastic. Um, and the point was, the point was that um, the idea of spending three months in the local Holiday Inn while working through the paper and all the material there, it was much better to get it all on, get it all on camera, have all the references right there in front of you, and then digest it and absorb it all at home. So all of that was a vast, a huge help. That will have filled in 
an enormous amount, I guess, of that human detail that's what makes yeah. your books so sort of compelling and involving to, to the non-military historians. Did your research also turn up anything that made you think differently about, as it were, the top-down aspect of the way the campaign was conducted? Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes, indeed. Um, there was one thing in there um, we haven't really sort of yet talked about, sort of Montgomery and the way that the whole operation came about. But the whole operation was basically imposed from top down by Montgomery, who wanted this opportunity to get across the Rhine, and then he would be top dog, and he should he felt he should be uh, ground forces commander. Well, uh, Eisenhower just stayed up in the clouds as sort of president of the board and nothing much more than that. And in the there, I found this extraordinary thing because uh, it's slightly the way that other historians have sort of always tended in the past to write about Arnhem as in rather in the if-only uh, category. By that I mean, if only this hadn't gone wrong, then it would have all been a huge success. Well, what became increasingly clear from all of these interviews with everybody at all levels was that it never actually stood a chance. It should never, ever have been launched. And there's even one moment which I never knew about at all, which was when Browning's aide was actually in Browning's office when General Urquhart, the commander of the British 1st uh, Airborne Division, marched in and saluted. And he said, sir, I have uh, carried out all the planning as you ordered, but I must now tell you I think this is going to be a suicide operation. Browning refused to listen. And, in fact, uh, it also came out that Browning had then um, had been approached by General Gale. Now, Gale had commanded the 6th Airborne in Normandy and was a very good airborne commander. He had actually far more experience than Urquhart did. And Gale said, this is madness. He said, this whole plan is madness. You must do something to stop it. But Browning, I'm afraid, largely for a question of vanity... He'd been a very brave officer in the First World War in the Grenadier Guards. He didn't have any airborne experience. And the one thing he wanted to do, because they all thought the war was coming to an end, was to take his corps into battle. And so Browning, as I say, the matinee idol, was determined that that nothing was going to stop him in that particular way. So he did not warn Montgomery that the whole planning which they had worked out in Belgium uh, together was actually not going to work at all because the air side said this is not on. Actually, there's, well, there's one other remarkable detail that I don't know, again, if this is new to this book, but mm. you have saying that this, this idea, which seems on the face of it not a great one, to send tanks down a road where you can't exactly. get off to either side, um, that all the Dutch officers are sort of sticking their hands and going, you know, well, they, in our staff college exams, this is one of the questions, and they fail you automatically if you send people exactly. up that road. It is. It's <laughs> astonishing. It was, right, it was the standard question in the Dutch exam. What happens if we have to withdraw to the north, being attacked from the south, uh, and all the rest of it? And the answer is, you do not go up that road or whatever. You know, you would actually have to branch off to the left if you were going to counterattack Arnhem and so forth. Anyway, um, they were, in fact, what was very interesting was that after Horrocks' briefing, this is on the 16th of September, the eve of battle, uh, to all his officers in uh, Leopoldsburg, or Burg Leopold, as soon as that had happened, the Dutch major, who was the brigade major, said to his uh, commander, he said, um, as far as I remember, Napoleon always used to say that if you were certain, if you were 75% certain of victory, he said, um, you could leave the, the remaining 25% to chance. He said, in this particular case, the British have reversed the proportions. <laughs> and it was absolutely true. Actually, it was worse than 75% against. I reckon it was nearly 90% against. At the end of the battle, of course, Montgomery claimed that um, because they'd got all 
not quite as far as Arnhem, it was a 90% success. Well, um, uh, Air Marshal Tedder, who was Eisenhower's deputy, said that's ludicrous. He said jumping off a cliff can be a success until the last foot before you hit the ground. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but that seems to be... I mean, it's, it, it's a very much mythologised thing, isn't it? Yes, I mean, you have yes. Churchill saying not in vain. Um, yes. I think Urquhart said it was not 100% of a success. Um, no, but Urquhart was not somebody to rock the boat, and he didn't want to rock the boat. And although this myth, this legend of heroic failure was sort of rapidly created, Urquhart, who was a good man, who was a brave man and all the rest of it, not very experienced in airborne, it's true, and all the rest of it, he did not want to upset that in any way. And so, uh, although some people were squabbling like um, rats in a, ferrets in a sack or whatever the phrase is, I mean, uh, Horrocks was trying to blame the airborne, the airborne were blaming, um, you, can, you can imagine, Brereton, who was the American commander of the First Allied Airborne Army, was trying to blame everybody else and so forth. And Urquhart was, a, was, a, was an honest and honourable man and wasn't trying to blame anybody. But he did say, now this was, this was actually fascinating, that he'd actually warned Browning beforehand it was going to be a disaster. And from that point of view, uh, the whole idea that it could have ever worked, the only reason why it could have worked for a moment was because the Germans made a totally uncharacteristic mistake. Field Marshal Myrtle refused to blow up the bridge at Nijmegen. Nobody could understand it. I mean, all of his senior officers were uh, amazed, bemused, and all the rest of it, but they couldn't uh, persuade him or move it. And actually, Myrtle had to admit afterwards it had been a huge mistake. But I mean, if that bridge, it was the biggest suspension bridge in, in, in Europe uh, over the Vaal, uh, if that had been blown, there was no way they could have ever, ever reached the first airborne as it was. They never got close to reaching the first airborne in time. No, it was, it was a tragedy. And I think that uh, when General Fraser sort of said afterwards, you know, it was, a, a few, it was futile in the literal sense of the term. And it was only redeemed, if you like, by the bravery of the people there. And I don't know whether that redeemed it or not. But uh, the consequences, as I say, for the Dutch were horrific. What was, you know, what did this particular book show you about the personal experience of people in this sort of extreme war-fighting condition and for the civilian population around them and these poor old Dutch? Well, a huge amount. I mean, my God, it's made me think very hard indeed. Um, it came from so many different directions. I mean, the Polish archives were incredible. I mean, I'm very, very lucky. I got a wonderful uh, Polish uh, researcher who was my translator when I'm for my Polish publishers whenever I go over there. And she did some fantastic work and then came and stayed with us and worked on the Polish archives in London. There's tremendous detail there. Often what one finds quite often is priests and doctors are some of the best, and nurses are the best, uh, certainly medical personnel, some of the best of observers. And it's their observation of the human condition. I mean, particularly when one thinks of, there were these totally improvised hospitals in Oosterbeck being bombarded. There were these guys, literally, the wounded, having to lie in bed with their steel helmets on because shells were coming through the windows. The glass, the glass was flying through. They had to pull the, whenever the uh, firing started, they had to pull the blankets over their heads, lying down on the ground. Many of them were actually killed in their beds. These are guys who had already been badly wounded. I mean, there was one officer who was, first of all, wounded, taken back to a hospital, uh, then wounded by a German shell, and finally, actually, it was one of the few, because the British artillery was so accurate, was then finally wounded by a British shell. So, I mean, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the conditions there were appalling. But you also learn so much about, also about, about toughness, which is never predictable in many ways, the, some of the VCs. I mean, and, you know, there's one extraordinary thing where somebody thought, well, this shows true airborne spirit, when you described one soldier sitting there in the, waiting to be in the hospital, with his fingers blown off, but he still was able to hold a cigarette between the stumps of a couple of the fingers. So he sort of, and he thought that's real airborne spirit.
spirit. On the other hand, you see very brave men who come to get fall to pieces completely. I mean, the book ends, I think, I mean, and the whole question of, you know, fear, courage, etc., uh, is sort of central. I think we all pose the question, what would I have done in these circumstances? The answer is you just don't bloody well know whether you would actually hold up on these, <coughs> under these circumstances. There was an airborne officer, okay, he'd never been in action before. He'd been married five days before to a very beautiful young woman. Uh, he'd been married five days before the operation. When he arrived, he just went to pieces under the shell fire and all the rest of it. I mean, some people can hack it, others can't. And he went to pieces, even though he was, as I say, a parachute regiment officer and all the rest of it. And with two orderlies, they hid in a, throughout the battle, hid in a, in a cellar, in a sort of country house on the edge of Oosterbeek. And eventually the people who owned the house um, found they were still there on the 26th of September after the British had withdrawn back, or those who could, withdrawn back across the Rhine. And they said, you've got to go, you've got to go, because, I mean, otherwise we're going to get shot. They were called Heisbrick, the um, family. And um, the son of the family took them, the three, to the river and said, you know, you've got to swim across, and, the, you know, the British troops are on the far side, and they swam the Rhine. But the officer drowned on the way. Now, to what degree did he, was this sort of a, a subconscious thing of wanting to die, to escape the shame of having come to pieces? Anyway, and this is the extraordinary thing, the, the medics who had been with him must have somehow told his wife, because she came and she went to visit the family of the Heisbrook. And the son then sort of, you know, took her to where he'd died and all the rest of it, and they end up getting married. I mean, there are so many stories. There are so many stories which are like short stories. I mean, sometimes in just in sort of two lines. I mean, there was a, um, a young American paratrooper who'd received a Dear John letter from his girlfriend. And this had sort of so enraged him that he was volunteering for every dangerous job going. And sure enough, you know, a sniper got him soon afterwards. You know, time and time again, this is where these, whether it's the observations of the, the officers or, of the, I mean, of the uh, doctors and the medics or of the, the priests, but also of the ordinary soldiers. I mean, I was amazed at how good, how observant uh, they were. Their conversations with the Germans, with the SS, about sort of, you know, why do you hate the Jews so much? Why do you hate the Russians so much? You know, uh, things like that. I mean, this is sort of detail, which I promise you, you just don't get, you don't get elsewhere. And as, uh, but the a lot of it's funny as well. I mean, oh yeah, no, I mean there are some, there are some very funny things. I mean, uh, what, what one sees is the difference between nations. I mean, there are always certain, shall we say, cliches or certain stereotypes, and they will leave. I mean, the way that the British had to joke through everything. I mean, I love this glider at one point that somebody looks at. It's got, is your journey strictly necessary? Yes, I know. <laughs> And oh, that's right. And whenever that crashed, of course, the Germans couldn't understand. You know, what does this mean? You know, they, gonna, they could not understand the British sense of humour. Oh, yes, there was a lovely, another wonderful one. Um, when I mean, some of the glider pilots actually were very tough guys indeed. They were all sergeants, and they, unlike the American glider pilots, had been taught to fight as infantry as soon as they landed. Anyway, he'd been captured. And there was this German soldier uh, on the day afterwards, and this was on the 26th of September, the day after, uh, who was prodding him with a rifle. And anyway, he has a little mirror in his pocket, and they've all got sort of beards by then, and they were totally filthy. And he, he takes out the mirror and looks at himself and said, admires his beard, and he said, tell me, is there a dance in town tonight? <laughs> <laughs> the German just simply didn't know, you know, what do you do with these people? <laughs> So you've got, you've got detail like that, which is, which is fantastic. But you've also got the detail, as I say, about combat shock, combat exhaustion, uh, shell shock, and all the rest of it. It's remarkable how many, I mean, just as you 
talk about the gliders loading out and the paratroopers going, that even in that first, you know, the first assault and the dropping of the first paratroopers, you've got a number of people deliberately sabotaging their own shoots. Sure, shooting, shooting themselves, or through shooting the themselves in the foot, or yeah. people yeah. Um, actually shooting themselves, Kills, killing dead. themselves. Yeah just in that first assault before they've even met the enemy. I mean, yes. that's well, and, and you get cases of Germans just shooting themselves as soon as the paratroopers land because they're, they're so shocked and um, they, they haven't, they've had, these are usually boys who've had no experience of war and they just simply don't know what to do. And they are traumatised and one's got to understand it in terms of trauma um, in, the, in those circumstances. I mean, sometimes there is a genuine element of exhaustion towards the end. Of course, it rises dramatically towards the end when after nine days of no sleep, actually no sleep at all, no food and shortage of water, there are guys, there are guys who are going crazy. I mean, sometimes they might sort of go charging out, saying, we're all going to die, we're all going to die, and of course they're gunned down immediately. Um, there are others who sort of, you know, strip themselves naked and think they're a, an engine driver and go walking around the ward of the hospital or whatever at night until they have to be restrained and, and put back. I mean, you know, there are numerous cases. I mean, on the German side too. Surprisingly, or interestingly, the Poles had very, very few. It was, I remember after the D-Day book of this thing of uh, German, uh, sorry, British and American psychiatrists wondering why the Germans had a much lower level of battle shock of trauma. And they reckoned, uh, uh, because in fact they suffered far more, more under the British bombardment in Normandy than the British had under German bombardment, and uh, all the Americans. And the conclusion they came to was actually it was preparation beforehand, i.e. The, the Germans had been psychologically prepared for it since 1933 and the British were essentially, and the Americans were essentially sort of civilian armies. Uh, so, so much and of the it... The Poles also... Well, the Poles had also yeah. been pretty tough, I mean, in the sense that they had already fought in 39, many of them had fought in 40 in the uh, French campaign, and also it was again a question of attitude. The British attitude towards the war was one of oh, God, you know, we'll have to see this through, chaps, you know, um, and uh, basically making a, the best of a bad job. Uh, the American attitude was, let's get this whole damn thing over as quickly as we can and get home. The Polish one was a far more sort of burning spiritual flame of, uh, of patriotism because they knew that they were fighting for their life as an independent nation. Well, with you feel very the sorry for the Poles in this book. The yes. Polish commander who is desperate to be deployed back to help with the Warsaw Uprising and not allowed to be. Pr promise broken to him there. He's hoping to be in, as it were, the tip of the spear, and he's not, and he's not, and he's not. And then finally, at the end of it, uh, he gets the blame for the whole thing. Well, not blame for the whole thing, but he's more or less sort of accused of trying to avoid combat, which is absolutely, I, I mean, it was total slander. I think both Montgomery and Browning behaved appallingly, abominably, frankly. And certainly it's a very, very powerful thing in Poland, I can promise you. I mean, you know, as far as they're concerned, uh, you know, the British government basically should Give, uh, provide a retrospective apology for the treatment of... Oh, that's a still alive... Oh, it is a still very much a live thing, thing there. And I'm, frankly, I have a lot of sympathy with them for, uh, on, that particular, on that particular school. But you, you do see quite a lot of these different sort of... Well, it's never generalised, of course, ever. I mean, you know, you, get, you, get, you have good Germans, you have uh, um, you know, Germans who basically don't want to kill, don't want to fight. And then, of course, you get the indoctrinated SS Panzer Grenadiers and all the rest of it, who, interestingly, and this isn't something I never expected in the archives again, was sort of, you know, confessing their own fear. I mean, normally you get for the sort of SS to start sort of saying, well, actually, we were, we were really scared shitless and we didn't know what we were doing and all the rest of it, and we were just silly little boys at that particular stage. It's not something you normally... Have. I haven't come across that in other, in other archives, certainly not in German archives and so forth. But the vengefulness so, of the German behaviour post-war, or was, no, not post-war, sorry, I mean, after the beaten back the British and they sort of took their revenge on the Dutch. Yes. 
Um, was it, I mean, how much was that candidly admitted to in the German archives? There's very little in the German archives, as you might imagine, um, on that particular score, because basically that's from much more sort of, if you like, the civil administration. I mean, you can get it, but you get it. I mean, I got it from many from the German archives because um, it's there in the um, signal correspondence uh, between Modal's headquarters and the others about blowing up the harbours at Amsterdam, stopping the rails, uh, and all the rest of it. And then later in other sources, uh, how they treated, I mean, the way they looted Arnhem. I mean, basically everybody was moved out so that they could loot the place to kingdom come. And my God, they did. I mean, it was... uh, total total ruin by the time they'd they'd finished so yes there was appalling treatment uh in that particular way and um even even Himmler was shocked at uh, uh, the way that sort of you know they've been behaving in in Arnhem. But only because of the point was that uh, um, all of the so-called commandos who were supposed to be taking the stuff for the German Reich uh, were actually, of course, filching it for themselves. I mean, it was totally shameless, and and you know and then the black market and all the rest of it. I mean, it was uh, all of the corruption that you might have imagined from a regime like that uh, came to the fore. You've said this Polish. Apology is still a live issue. How much do you think now, at this distance, we can see this this story clearly? I mean, you've you've done a lot to peel away the kind of myth of the heroic failure, but I mean, do you think still there's a way to go before you know we're able to see the Second World War clear, and particularly this thing of combat trauma? I mean, the, which is still, I mean, obviously it's it's in your book you're discussing it, but it's. Obviously, more and more and more, we're getting a sense of quite how serious it is. And oh, I think it is. I mean, in fact, let's face it. In, in comparison to the First World War, it had uh, improved no end, even by the Second World War. And there was some, actually some very good work done by American psychiatrists, particularly. I remember one called Weinberg in um, in Normandy and so forth. But it still, it was still in, shall we say, in its infancy as a um, uh, as, as a discipline that particular stage. And there was, if you like, a slightly more open-minded attitude towards it than there had been before. You know, it wasn't just a question of cowardice and shot at dawn or whatever it might be, uh, as had happened quite often in the First World War. But um, yes, we are learning more. But I think also when we're talking about, say, if you like, the parochial attitude to history, or rather the national attitude to history, uh, I do think things have come a long way, actually, in recent years, and from two things. One, because of the mixture in uh, history faculties and universities. I mean, funny enough, it started really with German academics coming here, which was wonderful. Uh, it was partly because the German system was so appalling in the sense that if you wanted to get on in the German academic system, you really sort of needed to cozy up to the big man on the subject uh, and become sort of his protégé, or, uh, and usually it wasn't always his. And um, many of them, and certainly of the sort of the brighter and the best, uh, then started moving to British uh, universities and American and Canadian universities and so forth, and even Australian and all the rest of it. And that's been a vast improvement that you start to get this internationalization. Uh, and we're not looking at the Second World War in quite the same parochial way that we did in the past. I mean, I remember sort of, you know, um, a conference in uh, Australia where we had, uh, you know, we had Japanese and uh, as well as obviously American, British and Australian. And then soon afterwards was one in Hawaii, where they actually got Japanese and Chinese together. 
Now, they weren't keen on sitting in the same room necessarily or very close to each other, but it was, it was a step forward. And I think it is vital that uh, these international conferences um, continue as much as possible, even in sort of you know, austere times and so forth, because uh, I think they have done so much to reduce this sort of uh, uh, way that in the past and for so long we've tended to look at things entirely through our own national uh, experience and national viewpoint and failed to view it from other sides. I'm afraid that's us time up, but Anthony Beaver, thank you very much indeed, and I hope you will all go home, read Arnhem, evangelise about it to your friends, but without telling them anything that's actually in it, um, and encourage them all to buy it. <laughs>